I agree. Okay. Today is the November 14th, 2021 meeting of Hope Bible Church. Steve Hogan's message is titled, The Jews, Past, Present, and Future. If you would like to donate to our sermon audio ministry, please click the Give button on our sermon audio homepage. Thank you. Our reading today will be out of Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 24 to 28. So that's Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 24 to 28. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons, forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel, when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, just giving us these verses to remind us of your promises, to remind us of your plans for us. Um, just thank you for such an inheritance and uh, just the joy that we'll have forever with you. And uh, we praise you for that. We praise you for being able to worship today and just remember these things, to meditate on them. Just pray that you'd have us walk away uh, changed even today once again in just your truth. We praise you for that. We pray that you'd be with Steve as he shares this truth and with us, opening our minds and our hearts. And um, we just put that in your hands and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. Whoa. Glad you could all be here, here at Hope Bible Church. Indeed, it's good to join together uh, for the Lord and for the encouragement of one another here to hear his word. I want to tell you a little story. Um, last week, uh, Raphael invited me to a, uh, a dinner, well, luncheon, but it was a steak. It was really nice. <laughs> they have a Baptist thing to do once in a while, and so he invited me, so we went over. And it was, it was, it was a good time, but I was standing there right before the lunch, and this person walks up to me and this probably happened to you sometime, but the person says, I, I've seen you someplace. And I'm thinking, I don't remember seeing this guy, but he said he saw me. So anyway, he introduced himself, says, his name is Glenn Reiniger. And of course, I know a little bit of our history here in the church. He says, that, he, I said, you used to be here at this church. He says, yeah, of course, different name back then, Hill, Hillsboro Christian Community Church, I think. And so I says, wow, and I like to talk to people about history, you know, and so we just chatted. We, well, we talked a whole lunch. We talked a whole lunch about lots of stuff, but... So he came here in 1984, and there's about 110 people. I'm going to tell you just a couple stories. 110 people, and then he left in 1993. He was 50. And he said around 1990 or so, which is 30 years ago, that you know, this, the Spanish people were moving in, which is a, a good thing, and they moved neighborhood, and, and it was just you know, more of a challenge for them to grow. And so some church came up and says, we want to buy the place. And so the leadership, Glenn and others in leadership, they wanted to do it. But then they went to the congregation, and they said, no, this is our home. We don't, wanna, we don't want to leave, you know. And so they didn't sell it, which you think about this. I mean, one of the reasons I'm here today and one of the reasons that Bethel's here today is because they did not sell back in 1990. And so that's just how God works. I read a verse in, in um, 2 Chronicles 10, 15. It says, this turn of events is from the Lord. It's from the Lord. God was sovereign. And so... Uh, the other thing, then I said, well, well, Glenn, if you could say one thing to the church, what would you say? And this is what he said. He's, he, if he was here, he would say this. He said, I'm glad you're still here. And so that was encouraging. But it made me think, you know, the last was Thursday, there was Veterans Day. And, and, and Veterans Day, it's, it's a great day to celebrate veterans who have served, you know, uh, in our country uh, throughout the years. It's, it's, it's a wonderful thing that we do because, indeed, we have a, 
I believe, a wonderful country, and indeed the veterans, the military that we have has been extremely important in terms of keeping this country going. We're all aware of that. But whenever that day comes, I always think about Christians. And now I say, as I say this, I'm not going to diminish what the military does because they serve for two years or four years or maybe 20 years or maybe a whole life. But I'm thinking, Christian, we're talking, this is spiritual warfare. you got an enemy you cannot see. I mean, I've been going for about, well, 50 years next February, a long time, and it is not easy at all. It's, it's tough being a Christian. Man, every day, you know, spiritual battles, enduring and keeping on going, and sometimes you're tired, and this happens, and that happens, and this struggle, and that trial. And anyway, those of you, I think all of you know what I mean, but particularly if you're a veteran, and, you know, you've been a Christian, and I'm not going to tell you there's a certain year when you know, um, uh, you know how, what's a veteran mean, you know? I mean, there's some here that have been in Christians, and I could say a name, but I won't say a name. been a long time, years, 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 years. So, so it's, it's, I want to encourage you with that. It's, it's good to keep going for the Lord. Uh, the Lord says in 1 Corinthians 1, I will keep you strong to the end so that you'll be blameless on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then this from Hebrews 12, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So wherever you're at, whatever your age, as Christians, you know, we don't retire. Uh, you know, and sometimes you get to my age in the 60s, you think, well, I mean, everybody else is retiring from their job, you know, and I just had a, a class reunion. I wasn't there, but I know that most of my classmates, they've retired from their job, and, you know, let us run the race that God has set before us. So we keep going. No matter what your age, God still has a race for you to run until that, that last, what the song we sang about... When cold as death, wave, like something like that, you know, until the Lord takes us home, we keep going. So anyway, just a couple stories to encourage us. History, looking back, is important, uh, and knowing that God has led through all the years. And, and, of course, Charlotte, she was one. She was there back in, I think she came around 1880, 81, and, and then she, she knows Glenn, and, and, of course, Linda, too, and, and many others. And Kenny, Kenny, I'm sure, knows Glenn as well. So, right, Kenny? So, anyway, um, God keeps us going. We thank him for that. Well, we've been looking at Genesis 1 to 11, uh, chapters which are foundational to God's word and to God's work in the world to understand God's plans for us and this world. The truths that we see in Genesis 1 through 11 are really, really important. These first, chap- first 11 chapters, of course, lead us up to chapter 12. In chapter 12, we read about how God then is working through Abraham, and from there we see that God works through his descendants, and we have what's called the Jewish people. Uh, the Israelites. The whole rest of the Old Testament, which is 99% of the Old Testament, is centered around, focused on the Israelites, explains then how God works through them and uses them for his purposes, particularly relative to the Old Testament times, also then related to the life of Christ, also then related to the church age and in years to come. And I'll explain that as we go through the message this morning. And so today I want to summarize God's working with the Jews and, and from the time of Abraham up to the time, our time here today and, and then into the future. And last week we looked at the promise that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 12, uh, that he would bless him by giving him a great name and a great nation and great blessings that literally would affect billions of people. If you think about all the people who've lived throughout the years, it literally affect billions of people, not so much in his time. Uh, the promises really were those that were fulfilled in the, in the years to come. And these promises from Genesis 12 were, 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 were repeated and expanded. I, I looked at Genesis 13, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, and I want to look at one more verse because you look at it, and I've got many notes at home, and I'm not going to go time to go with those notes now, but many notes talk about how uh, God's promises for the, the Jews are still valid. Psalm 105, I'll just read a couple verses. This is verses 8 through 11. Psalm 105, 8-11 says, God has remembered his covenant forever. The word which he commanded to a thousand generations. The covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac. Then he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant. Saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as a portion of your inheritance. So twice he says, he says everlasting. He says, he says this is, is, is a, a, a forever covenant. And so he has this promise, and the promise here there is very clear. It's about the land. I'm going to give you some land, and this is an eternal forever covenant. That's what he tells to Abraham. There's more verses like that. 
But from Genesis 12 then to the end of Genesis, Genesis 50, it's, it's about God working through Abraham and then working through Abraham's son, which is Isaac, and then Abraham's grandson, which is, which is Jacob, and great, Abraham's great-grandson, which is Joseph. And, and their, one of their primary purposes then was to make a nation, to build a nation. And God had a very unique way of doing that. You know the story. I'm not going to go through all the details it's explained there in Genesis, but what happened is, is God sent. And in fact, you look at Psalm 105, and it talks a fair amount about Joseph, how God sent Joseph then down to Egypt. And a unique way of doing it. You read the chapters of Genesis, you'll see there. And later on, there's a famine up in Canaan land where Jake, Joseph's brothers and father were at, 11 brothers and a father and their families. And so they all came down to Egypt, not knowing Joseph was there, but he was not, you know, they didn't recognize who he was, but he was then second in command, and God works it out. So Joseph then provided them food, and they stayed for a while. And God has said this, I think, in Genesis 14. They'd be standing for 400 years. 400 years, they say, they became very, very fruitful, uh, estimates up to about 2 million people that were there. And so God blessed them. Then it was time for the Jews to leave Egypt and head to the promised land to officially become a nation. God then, we know the story in Exodus, God raised up Moses, and uh, Moses then led the people out of Egypt. That's quite the story there, Genesis 9, 10, 11, about all the plagues and things, and and led them out of Egypt, and then 40-year journey through the desert. That's what did happen there. But some important things in the desert. While in the desert, God gave them laws to follow so they could worship and obey him. While in the desert, God gave them sacrifices that they were to do. Sacrifices which were were twofold. One, they were to be a temporary means by which the, the, the Jewish people could be atoned, forgiven of their sins. But also then a picture, these sacrifices, a picture of the Messiah to come, who would then lay down his life, would die for the people's sins and and, 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 and make payment uh, for all those who then would repent of their sins and put their trust in him. He would defeat sin and death and, and, and hell forever. That's indeed what he would do. And so, and this, I'm going to say this thought again because you read the Old Testament and it's in a lot of chapters, but sadly the Jews were people who sinned a lot. So I want you to go to Psalm 106 and just read a few verses here. And these are just verses about their sin. You can listen, you can follow along, whatever. Verse 7, it says, Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember your abundant kindnesses. 13, they quickly forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. 14, they craved intensely in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. 16, when they became envious of Moses in the camp and of Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord. 19, they made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a molten image. 20, they exchanged their glory for the image of an ox that eats grass. 21, they forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things for them. 24, they despised the pleasant land. 25, they grumbled in their tents. 28, they joined themselves also to Baal, Peor, and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. 29, they provoked God to anger with their deeds. Verse 32, they provoked him to wrath at the waters of Meribah. Uh, Verse 33, they were rebellious against his spirit. 34, they did not destroy the peoples. 35, they mingled with the nations. 36, they served their idols. 37, they even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons and shed innocent blood. This chapter, maybe as much as any chapters in the Old Testament, sums up the sins of the Israelites. It's going over hundreds of years there, but it sums it up. But, but, but God, look at verse 45, 43 rather. Many times God would deliver them. They, however, were rebellious in their counsel. They sank down their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. He remembered his covenant, that covenant we talked about, that promise he gave Abraham in chapter 12. He relented according to the greatness of his loving kindness. He also made them objects of compassion in the presence of all their captors. Save us, O Lord, our God, and gather us from among the nations to give thanks to your holy name and glory and your praise. Blessed be the God, the Lord God of Israel, from everlasting even to everlasting. Let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. So God kept working, even though they were, were sinners. So the people would sin, but what you see, and I want to say this again, this is always important to remember as we think about church history, that people sin, but God would continually then be raising up a remnant of people, a remnant of people who would work through and use them for his purposes. We see that with the Jews. We see this in modern day. The, the Christians are in the minority. We will not be in the majority. Never think that, not until we get, I believe, to the next age after this. So God then raised up Joshua. 
He led the Jews into the promised land. This is the land that God had promised them. And you've heard this little phrase. It was a land flowing with milk and honey, which means there is livestock there and lots of fruit trees because you need fruit trees for the honey and need the livestock for the milk. And so God, indeed, it was a blessed land because there were people living there and they just left. They just took over their homes and their vineyards and they took their animals and God blessed them. After that, God raised up judges, people like Gideon, Deborah, and Samson, and these judges for the next 340 years and were leading the people and delivering the people from their enemies. And there's all kinds of problems. Again, they sin. And sadly, the last verse of the book of Judges, you know what it says? It says they did what was right in their own eyes. And that's just another way to say they did what they wanted. They weren't doing what God wanted. They sinned. Well, the final judge is one we talk about in 1 Samuel, and he is Samuel, and he's a very, very godly man. It's, it's encouraging reading about him. In fact, turn to 1 Samuel 12, 22, just, just a, a couple verses that give this picture of his life. 1 Samuel 12 says, for moreover, he is, Samuel's talking, moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, but I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, both you and your king will be swept away. And they just had gotten the king. It would have been King Saul. And what happened is the Jews were clamoring to Samuel says, hey, we want a king, because all the other nations had kings. And they said, we want a king, too. So God, God's sovereignty, God's purposes, he raised up Saul. Saul wasn't the best of kings, not because of God's fault. God's never at fault. We know that sometimes we like to blame him for things. We should never blame God. Saul was not the best because of his mistakes, his sin. You see that in 1 Samuel 15. Well, the next king was David, the best of kings. And David, his son Solomon, they reigned during the glory years. Uh, when the Jews, when the Israelites were the most prosperous uh, nation, most powerful nation in the world. You read those stories, you read in Second Chronicles, I think it's 8 and 9, maybe it's 9, about Beth, not, uh, what's the name, the lady, Queen of Sheba. Man, they were rich. <laughs> they like, I think every year they'd get in 25 tons of gold, you know, one ounce of gold, what, what's it cost? What, I don't know, $1,500 or something, but 25 tons of gold. They just, the money and the revenue just kept pouring in. They were prosperous. They were wealthy. Solomon, of course, is the smartest man in the world at that time. We know that as well. But in general, the people continue to sin. God judged the people in accordance with their sin. You read this, and I mentioned this last time, and look at a few verses. Deuteronomy 28, the last part of that chapter, just lists all the different ways that God would judge people for their sins. I mean, just many, many different ways. There were plagues and wars and famines and all kinds of other afflictions that he would bring upon them. And during this time, and you read this in First Kings and Second Kings and Second Chronicles, First Chronicles and Second Chronicles, there's, there's all kinds of kings. And it's very interesting to read that because you have really summaries of, of their lives. Some summaries are maybe two or three sentences long. Some might be two or three chapters long. But you have bad kings like, you know, King Ahab. You have King Manasseh, really bad king. Then you got good kings like uh, Asa and, and, and uh, Jehoshaphat, uh, um, what's another one, um, Hezekiah. So you have a lot of good kings as well. So that's what happens. But, but another thing, I'll say this again, the people sinned, they kept sinning. And it resulted in the splitting of the kingdom uh, between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And so that, that took place probably around 915, 900 B.C. or so. And so the, the kings were sinful, and, and God kept judging them. You read the prophets, and it just makes it so clear. God sent prophet after prophet after prophet. And you may not like reading the prophets, but I have said in the past they're a good read because it helps us to stay more holy by seeing how people sin and God's judgment upon sin. So all these prophets, and for the most part, the people did not repent, okay? Finally, God's patience was up. Uh, you know, God doesn't have unlimited patience. You know, we can say he's infinite in love and infinite in power, Patience has a limit, and they had a limit. So finally he says, you guys are gone. So he exiled the northern kingdom. This is about 724 B.C., and he exiled the southern kingdom. This is about 586. There's two or three different exiles, but the last final one was 786 or 586, and uh, he made them leave. Uh, but God promised that the kingdom that he'd bring them back, and uh, some of these exiles, one of the most well-known ones was, was Daniel, who wrote the book of Daniel, indeed an amazing book about the you know, future of Israel. And so he sent them, but he said, you're going to come back in exactly you know, 70 years. You read that in, in Jeremiah 29. He probably 70 years. 
And so they come back. You've got Ezra and Nehemiah and a few others were leading them back, you know, Zerubbabel. And they come back, and there they are in the land, and they rebuild the city. They rebuild the wall, you know, the Nehemiah story. And then they, they rebuild the temple that's Zerubbabel, and they get that built. And so they start off and sacrifice again. So it was, it was good. It was just a remnant, though. It was this, this group, this second group. I mean, that group before, you know, before the exile, there's a lot more Jews, but a lot of them were sinning. God says, okay, you're gone. Now he brings back this remnant, and they're there until the time of, 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 of Christ. Now, in Genesis 3, we read that God wanted to bring the Messiah into the world through the seed of the woman. We know that. And this is probably, if, if, in my opinion, that's the single most important thing they did to, through their lineage then to bring the Messiah into the world. And so Jesus then had all these ancestors from Abraham to Isaac to Judah to David to Solomon, all these different ancestors. You go to Matthew 1, you go to Luke 3, you read about them all. It's all there, all these, all these lists, the listing of every one of Jesus' ancestors from, you know, his parents clear up to Adam are, are found in, in those two chapters, uh, Matthew 1 and Luke 3. And it really is amazing, you think about this, to see how God had all this planned out. I mean, God had it planned out. We're talking since eternity past. He knew exactly who the ancestors would be. He knew all their names. He knew where they'd live, how long they'd live. He knew it all. He had it all figured out, you know, and everything. And then and they were born, and, and so God then brought about this over this 2,000-year period from Adam then to the time of Christ. But I want you to, I want to read, uh, turn to Revelation 12, because it really is amazing to see this happen. But you have to understand, I just want this one point on this, Revelation 12, is that, that uh I mean, do you think that the devil was just letting this happen? No way. And these, these verses, as much as any, probably better than any place in the Bible, sum up this opposition. It was a devilish opposition. Revelation 12, verse 1 to 5 says, A great sign appeared in the heaven, a woman clothed the sun. The woman is referring to the Jewish people. The sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. That refers to the 12 tribes of Israel. And she was with child. This meaning primary, at least in my opinion, the primary purpose of the Jews was to bring this child, the Messiah, into the world. So she was with child and, and, and through the genes of Abraham and all his descendants, Christ would be coming. Okay, that's, that, that's the point here. And she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. And the reason she was in pain and labor is verse 3 and 4. Then another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. And his heads were seven diadems. These seven heads, ten horns refer to eight kingdoms who are in opposition to the Jews. That is, the devil did not want the Messiah to be born. That's the one thing, one thing he did not want to have. On his tail swept to a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. That means, I believe, a third of the... Angels that were originally created by God defected, went with the devil. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. That referring to God uh, allowing or the devil using King Herod to kill baby Jesus, but that did not happen. Verse 5, she gave birth to a son, a male child, who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Her child was caught up to God into his throne. So you see there in that verse 5, this, this, this Messiah is one who is both a savior, but he's also then who is a king. And so, that's a summary. Okay, now we go back. Uh, the prophets also, of course, predicted uh, the coming Messiah. Uh, many, many verses. You, you know the Micah 5-2 verse about how from Bethlehem will come forth one. You know, you have that verse. You have Isaiah 53, probably, the man, one of the best chapters in the whole Bible about the Messiah. And this talking about him being the savior, dying for our sins. But turn to Isaiah 9 in in another four or five weeks you'll probably hear this more different songs and think about this it's it's very encouraging christmas verse it's really a first and second coming verse isaiah verse nine verse six a child will be born to us his son will be given to us that's his first coming and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called wonderful counselor mighty god eternal father prince of peace no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with righteousness, just and righteousness from then on and forevermore. This kingdom relates to David, his throne, it relates to Christ, he's the one. But, but it's interesting because it, it says that this is what's going to happen. And, of course, you have to know that when the Jews read this throughout the Old Testament time, you get to the first sentence, it's obvious that a lot of Jews are men. I read verse 6 and I read the first two lines, a child and a son be given to us, and then the government 
So that's why so many thought, well, Jesus is going to start reigning. He's right here. Why? How can you split that verse in two and say one is now and one is later? You see, so they're confused. A lot of them are real confused, and I can understand why. They didn't understand all of God's plan. So Jesus then comes to earth. He's born as a baby on the earth. He becomes a man. He's a, the son of God, but also the son of man. He's a perfect man. Again, his primary purpose is to save people from their sins. These verses here, John one twenty nine says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's John the Baptist saying that, Luke 19.10. Jesus says, The Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So many, many verses. i just give you a few there about Christ's purpose. He did the most important thing that ever was done on earth. He died on the cross to pay for people's sin, and then he rose again from the dead, his resurrection being a clear, clear sing, signal or uh, the event that shows that he was victorious. And thereby he gained the victory over sin and death and hell and all those, again, who repent of their sins and turn from the sin and turn to Christ and are forgiven. That's what we understand. And so after Jesus rose, again, he ascended into heaven. And through Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, through God's word, and through 12 apostles, the church began on that day of Pentecost. And it continued on, and it still continues on today. Twelve apostles, of course, were Jews. We know that, and, and you read the, the first chapters, whether it's an Acts of the places, they were reaching out to the Jews. A lot of Jews were getting saved, but over not too long, a lot of the Jews started turning against the Christ. Their hearts were hard. And Jesus predicted what was going to happen many different times, three different times at least. And so what happened then in 70 AD, the Romans came, they went and just, man, just leveled Jerusalem. And a lot of, a lot of the Jews were killed, and a lot more were scattered all over the world. But turn to Luke 19. And uh, just a, a couple verses, but it's just, you see Jesus' heart. This is, I believe, one of the times where he weeps. I'm not sure if it's stated in these verses here, but Luke 19, verses 41 to 44. It says, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day even you the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. And turn to a couple more verses here. Luke chapter 21, just a couple chapters later, and, and I'm not going to read it, but in chapter 20, 23, Jesus again states what's going to happen. Luke 21, 20 to 24 gives a summary of probably the best New Testament summary of, of God's working with the Jews that there is. Verse 20, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Again, referring to 7 AD. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city, because these are days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babes in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people, which is what took place. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations, and of course, as we know from history, that's true. The Jews are all over the world. And Jerusalem is because of this. Why the Jews in this country and this country? They're all over because of this. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time the Gentiles are fulfilled. That last phrase making it very clear that there's only a certain time. They'll be trampled for only so long, and then they will return when the Gentiles' times are fulfilled. So that's, that's what we, we see there. Now, this sums up about 2,000 years of Jewish history. The Jews were persecuted and were scattered. Uh, they've come back. This is a predicted Old Testament. Some of what Bruce read there in Ezekiel 37 speaks about that. In fact, you read Ezekiel 36 and 37, just classic. Probably the best chapters there are in the Old Testament about them returning. And Dem Bones, remember the story about that? There's a song, Dem Bones, and I, I'm not gonna, I don't even know the song, but <laughs> Steve probably knows, Marsh probably knows, Dem Bones will rise again. And that's what it is. He's illustrating these, all these dead bones, and they raised again, and Israel's back in their land. Romans 11 tells that the Jews will, would have hard hearts in the church age. I mean, if, if you did a survey, a careful survey, and you don't even need a careful survey, you go through life and you share the gospel, you can see that in general the Jews have harder hearts. Not many Jews get saved compared to the rest of the population. But the Bible, this Romans 11, predicts that a remnant of Jews would get saved. Turn to Romans 11, 11.25. This to me is one of the clearest passages about um, what God wants to do for the Jewish people that God still has
plans for them. 11:25 to 27. It says there, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, just as we read in Luke 21. And so all, written, all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So promise to, to the Jews and many other promises like that that say God's going to save a remnant of Jews. That's right here in Romans chapter 11. So from Romans 11 and Luke 21, we see that God still has plans for the Jews, and God has been faithful to them to fulfill these plans. In the 1880s, I've talked about this. God, that's when you look, and you can go back, and you can Google this. It's really easy, and you can find population charts of all the population of Israel from the 1880s clear on up. They started coming back, and this is one of the most amazing, miraculous events of all time. What has transpired from the 1880s clear on up to the present? Now there are about 6.6, 6.7 million people. Back then, there's maybe five or 10,000 just scattered around that nation back then called Palestine or whatever they called it. But it's amazing. Now, there may be five reasons. I'm going very quickly. Five reasons why this is just phenomenal. never happened before. First is you have the same people. These weren't Germans moving in to that land. These weren't Chinese people. These weren't people from South Africa. <laughs> you know, they, they weren't people from America going back. No, that wasn't it. They were the Jewish people whose ancestors were people we've talked about here. Jewish people. Number two, they're going to the same land. Same land. That's, that's amazing. Third, same language. They still have their language. Not lost it after 2,000 years of being scattered or 1,800 years. Amazing. Fourth thing, same culture. Same religion. Fifth thing. Five huge things. It has never, ever, ever, ever happened where a country has been displaced and come back all like this. Never. Happened to Jews. It's, it's a miracle. It's an absolute miracle, and God did it. So, from, from, so we see then what God is doing. Now, in the 1940s, we know the story. Hitler and the German Reich killed about six million, different, six million Jews, and this is sad. So tragic. He says, man, what's God doing? People back then who were Christians, you know, thinking, hey, God's got a future for the Jews. Six million Jews wiped out. Well, God used that as one of the main impetus to get that nation going. 1948, Israel recognized as a nation. And, 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 and so now that the Jews are back in, the, in, in their land, this is, this is what I believe the Bible says we're in now what's called the end times. You read that in Daniel 12.4. And 12.9. They're back in, in their land. This is the end times, the last years of this church age, the last years before Christ comes back to rapture the church, okay? That's, that's what we understand. Now, I need to explain something. This is important. In Christianity, some question whether the promises from God to the Jews are still valid. And this is a huge question. I mean, we're talking, there's probably half of Christendom in this country, anyway, thinks has this question. It's, it's not a small thing. And I'm not going to take a long time. I just want to share a couple things here. But some Christians believe that these promises have been canceled, that they're null and void, okay? And they would say, well, look what happened back in the first century. You know, they rejected Christ. They crucified Christ. They rejected him. Um, I believe God's promises are still valid. I'll just give you six reasons. First of all, God's promises to the Jews are unconditional. God does never go back in his word. Number two, some say the promises God made were transferred to the church, but God never says that. You might say, see someplace where it's implied. It's never stated, never, ever directly stated they're transferred to the church. You just can't find it. Um, you carefully examine the promises. You say, you know, that's, you're making a hard, tough argument to say those promises for the Jews back in whatever chapter in the Old Testament now for the church. For example, we, we read we sang Isaiah 60, Arise, shine, your light has come. And you know what it says in that song? We sang this. That your light has come to the nations. That's prophetic. You look at the verses in Isaiah 60, 1, 60, 1 and 2. How can those be for the church? They're still going to be fulfilled. You read it. Those three, I'm not going to take time. People who say the problems of the church interpret verses allegorically and metaphorically, and that's not how you interpret the Bible. Yes, there's some symbolism. That's different between allegory. In fact, one thing, I'm going to the history of this. Back in the first century, Second century, and you read just the literature of the day, and the Christians, and the people, the thinking, the educated, it was allegory, allegory, allegory. That was just the way, well, what does this mean, or what does this verse mean? So you have even the Christians going in the first and second century, well, what does this verse mean? It was allegory, allegory, allegory. That was the way they thought. But it goofed them up with coming with a literal translation of the Bible. And so, so you, you take just the word Israel. So if you have this word Israel, which appears, I don't know, hundreds of times in the Old Testament, how can you say that word Israel in that chapter is now for the church, you see? Allegory, huh? Really? So that point. Next one. 
uh, that many of these promises have the word eternal or forever in them. And if God says something's forever and eternal, then it's forever and eternal. That's just that. I mean, we read Psalm 105. Last week's set, we read Hebrews, excuse me, Genesis 13. For the land which you see, I will give it to you and your descendants forever. And I have a hard time saying, well, that word forever just was only true back then, but not true today. So you have those verses. Then the fact that, the, the, that God brought the Jews back to their land, as I said before, is one of the most amazing miracles ever. And it's the kind of thing that has never, ever happened to any nation ever. And that it has happened is a sure sign that God's promises to them are going to be fulfilled. Okay. The sixth one, and this is, this is a big one here. Many verses in the New Testament talk about the Jews. And why would they be there if they're not for the Jews? So let me look at three examples. We're not going to look at verse. We're just going to look at the big picture. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24. If you come Wednesday night, um, my last series on prophecy with Bethel, and it's going through Matthew 24. It's a wonderful chapter. If you can come, I encourage you to come if you can. Matthew 24 and 9 through 14 is all about the church. 15 through 27, it's all about the Jews, side by side. Luke 21, Luke 21. Luke 21, verse is 12 to 19, all about the church. All about the church. 20, 24, we just read this, all about the Jews, side by side. One more, and there's more. I'll just give you one more here. Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, verses 4 through 8, are all about the Jews. That's the number of the 144,000, 12 tribes that are mentioned there, all their names. Verses 9 through uh, 14, all about the, the, believe, the, the Christians. And so they're side by side. And here's the point. All these side by side passages of the church and the Jews written in the context of promises about the end times are some of the most conclusive proofs there are that God's promises and plans for the Jews are still valid and will be fulfilled. Side by side, right there. And there's others. There's just, just some of them. Well, Daniel chapter 9. Let's go there. Daniel 9, 24 to 27. I mentioned before, Daniel, half, half of Daniel is, is prophecy about the future. And it's, it's really critical to understand it. He says some things that are very, very important. Daniel 9, 24 to 27. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Not going to take time. That's the first and second coming verse. The first half of those promises are about the first coming, the second half about the second coming. So you're to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city. The sanctuary, its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he'll put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. And I could take a whole message on this. I'm just going to take a couple minutes, so listen up. Seventy weeks. Back then the word weeks meant seven, and by the context he determined it to mean seven days, seven months, seven years. From the context it's seven years. Seventy weeks means you have 70 sets of seven years, and 70 times seven is 490, right? So this is talking about 70 weeks, which means 490 years. It says from the issuing of the decree to restore, rebuild Jerusalem, scholars look back, Bible scholars say, well, that was 445 B.C. or someplace around there, about, about 444 B.C., time of Nehemiah. That's when that happened. So then you start adding numbers, and I've looked at these numbers, and you got some smart mathematicians and who understand how the calendar works. So it says after 69 weeks, 69 times 7 is what? It's 483. After 483 years from the issuing of the decree in 445 B.C., accounting for the fact that the Jewish year is different than the, our year now, and they did all the calculations, it brings you to the time when the Messiah was crucified or cut off, which is about 30 A.D. I'm saying about because I don't know all the exact dates down. Amazing. Amazing. 
you, you, when you, if, and I'm a, I'm a numbers guy. And so I'm going through these numbers. This is, I haven't done it for quite a few years. I'm going through all their calculations. This is amazing. Exactly to that day when Christ is crucified on that, that Good Friday. Exactly. 483 total years. Well, you got seven years left. Seven years. One week. The 70th week has not started yet. It's not happened, but it will. Let me explain what will be happening in the future as it relates to the Jews and the church. Because I talked to you about the Jews in the past, up to the present. Now looking a little future. There will be birth pains affecting the Jews and believers and all kinds of people all over the world. All kinds of, of birth pains. More wars and plagues and, and famines. And right now I think you've all heard of this, this word called supply chain. And maybe some shortages. This was going to happen. I, I really believe there's plenty of food all over the world. The problem is the supply chains. And it happens in all kinds of countries. It's happening here now more than it's happened in really quite a few years. That, this will happen. There won't be enough food for people. And, and we're going to see it uh, more and more. Next, the Jews will make a peace treaty. That's at Daniel 9. He'll make a firm covenant with the many for one week. That's a peace treaty with the Jews. That's what he's going to do. And the key person that's going to be there in the context is this one called the Antichrist. I don't know. I don't think that people at that time will discern that is, you know, different peace treaties that take place. And so is that the peace treaty? And is that the guy? It's not clear, okay? But the Antichrist will be there. That is the beginning of Daniel's seventh week, again, a seven-year period of time. Then the Jews will build a temple, and I think this is part of the treaty. Okay, we're making this treaty. One thing we get is we get to build our temple. They build the temple, and they start making sacrifices. It's still future. But, but I tell you, if you're here and you hear that the Jews are make, building temples, it's, whoa, it's coming true. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, talk about the same thing. Fourth, the Antichrist will be revealed at the midpoint of, of the 70th week. It says there that, that um, he'll put a stop in the middle of the week. This is two or three lines down. In the middle of the week, he'll put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. He'll stop it. It's called the abomination of desolation. He desolates the temple because here's comes in this ungodly person, and he shouldn't be there. It's just for the priests and the high priests, and he desolates, he desecrates it, and then his colors, and then discerning Christians and Jews will know. And if you're alive at that time, you hear about this saying, wow. But what happens right then is he comes chasing after the Jews, persecute them, you know, going after them. But they'll be supernaturally protected. Turn to Revelation 12. I, I love these verses here. These are just classy. And this is sort of what you see in, in Matthew 24 when you have those verses from 15 to 27. It says it in a way that confirms the Matthew 24 passage. But we read here in verse 13, it says, When the dragon saw that he is thrown down, the dragon is the devil. There comes a time, and this is the middle of the 70th week of Daniel, when he is fighting against Michael the archangel, and he's thrown down to the earth. He persecuted the woman. But the dragon, this is chapter 12 here, you read about the dragon Chapter 13 talks about how he works through the Antichrist. So it says he's thrown down to the earth. He persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. The woman, again, is, in this whole setting, we looked before Revelation 12, 1 to 5, is the, is the Israelites. The two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly in the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half the time from the presence of the serpent. And so... Um, God protected. I mean, a number of Jews are going to die, no doubt about it. But there's a remnant. Again, we're talking about the remnant. Talk about the remnant, remnant, remnant. There's a remnant of Jews that, that God is going to protect and, and during this last half of the seventh week. Serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman. The earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. I'm not sure what that all means. <laughs> Some, some people, and I, I got to be careful. We all have to be careful. We don't want to say something the Bible doesn't say. But the point is, somehow God miraculously saved and protected a number of Jews. But, verse 17, key verse, the dragon was enraged with the woman, with the Jews, went off to make war with the rest of her children. Who are the children? They keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Clearly, those children are believers. They hold to the commandments of God. They they, they keep the commandments of God, and they hold to the testimony of Jesus. So he comes after the, the Jews and then the Christians. This is exactly what we see in Matthew 24 as well. So that's, and that leads to the fifth point. The Antichrist will begin persecuting the Christians. This is called great tribulation. Next, the rapture of the church happens sometimes during the last half of Daniel's 70th week. We don't know when. Unknown time, because we don't know the day of the hour. That's Matthew 24, verse 36, I believe, says that. We don't know that. And then God's wrath will be poured out upon the Jews 
upon the earth, unbelievers that is, not upon the Jews, on the unbelievers, they're protected during that last part of Daniel's seventh week. At the end of the seventh week, a large remnant of Jews will be saved. We read about that in Revelation, excuse me, Romans chapter um, 11 there, 25 to 27. A short time after that, the millennial kingdom age will begin in the thousand-year period when Christ reigns on the earth and the Jews who are just saved will reign with him and all believers will be there at that time, will reign with him, which includes all who are raptured and all believers who are in heaven will all be with him. We will worship and serve him in, in, in this king, kingdom age and we'll be using our gifts and abilities to do that and it'll be a most wonderful, wonderful time. It says in Psalm 47, God is the king of all the earth. And, and sometimes we, and I've said this before, we get a little bit dismayed, upset, mad, upset, angry, whatever, um, because we see what's going on in the world. And, yeah, we are in the evil age. That's Galatians 1.4. We are in the evil age. It's in general not going to get better. In fact, the Bible says it's going to get worse. Matthew 24, verse 11 or 12 says that things are going to get worse and worse and worse until Christ comes back. That's just the way it is. That's what God tells you. So these are tough times to live in. That's, that's the truth. And so God then worked with the Jews from about 2000 B.C. up until the time of Christ. It's about 2,000 years. The time of the church to now is about 2,000 years. I'm not trying to make a case for exactly 2,000 years. I'm just telling you in general numbers, 2,000 years. In the near future then, because I believe we are in the last years of this church age, Christ will come back. And Revelation chapter 6 through 19 speaks of events that are between this age and the age to come, which read, read that in Ephesians 1.21, if you're interesting, this age and the age to come. So that's what Revelation is primarily about, what's going to happen between when the church is raptured and, and then the new age starts. That's that's majority of it anyway. So God's going to, you know, again, in the next age, work with believers from all time. You know, all believers, those who are alive now, those who already passed away, Jewish believers, everybody who's a believer, God's going to work with during that time. And then all the promises, and this is really interesting because, again, you read um, the Old Testament, and there's, I don't know how many, there's just I got, there's tons of them, tons of, of promises that God gives for the, the Jewish people, and they will then be fulfilled. In fact, if you have it, you should have your bolt in there. There should be a chart. It says the Jews in the promised land, and, and you look at it, and, and there's some verses there, but you go back to Abraham, clear on the left side, 2050 B.C. or so is when they figure that um, God first promised Abraham these things. They're not in the land, and they're back in the land, the promised land, 1400 to 586, and they're exiled. We know that. That was 70 years. They're back in the promised land, then they're exiled again. About 18, well, I said, I said 1940, that's when they're officially a nation. They're back in the land now, and we're in the end times, okay? That's how I see what the Bible says this. And then, short, we'll have the resurrection, the rapture of believers, and then we'll have the millennial kingdom. That's what will take place. So God, indeed, is, 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 is true to his word. But all these promises to the Jews and the promises God gave the church, and, and some of these will be distinct. Again, I, I've not studied this enough to know which one is, okay, just for the Jews and just for the church. But let me tell you one that is the same, okay? Psalm 37, 11, it says, The humble will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. That chapter is written to the Jews. The humble will inherit the land. And it says inherit the land, I think, six times in Psalm 37. So it's repeated. If something's repeated, it means it's important. Six times, inherit the land, inherit the land. Here it says, the humble will inherit the land forever. You go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. It says, blessed are the gentle. They will inherit the earth. Now, in that context, what are we talking about? Talk about the church, the Christians. So you have two verses saying the same thing. So... The Jews, the believing Jews, along with the Christians, we, they will inherit the earth. And then one, one more verse here on that, then we'll wrap things up. Hebrews chapter 11, verse um, 39 to 40. Hebrews 11 is often called the hall of faith. I think hall of faith is a good way to you know, talk about it, but it's also, and I think maybe as much so, the hall of hope. Because you go there and you read about how they're, by faith, they're looking ahead to what's promised. And this is Moses and this is Abraham. They're looking ahead to the future. Come to the last two verses. All these... And you got, I don't know how many people, 30, 40 people in that chapter. Talk. All these people, Old Testament Jews and others, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. God made all these promises. They didn't get them back then, did they? They didn't. Nope. Because God had provided something better for us. Now, again, you got to understand, it's very simple, very important here. Distinction between those from the past that did not receive what was promised and us us is, is Christians, so that apart from us, they, 
they as unbelieving Jews from the Old Testament and others, talked about in Hebrews 11, they is those people, us is us Christians, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. You see, it's together. All comes together. It's just amazing verses. You have to, you have to see these two verses. I thought you don't understand the whole chapter. It all comes together right there. It's, it's really, really something. A couple more verses. Back, these are, I believe, kingdom age verses. The earth will be filled with the glory, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. A very, very encouraging one. Then Psalm 67, and we'll finish with these. Psalm 67, 3 to 5. We sing, we sing these songs. We sing Habakkuk. We sing Psalm 67 as 2. We, we sing a lot of songs that are prophetic in nature. 3 to 5. Says, let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you, let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you will judge the peoples with a brightness and guide the nations on the earth. That that will come true. The nations in general, I'm not saying they're all saved, but majority I believe are. Nations be glad and sing for joy. You, God, you'll judge the earth, you'll guide the nations, you're the king, you're overall. Verse five again, let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. So that's that and that's 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 the number one goal, right? Number one goal is we praise the Lord. And so it's talking about people that will be praising him in the future. So we have these, these truths here. I've gone through a lot of things. Now, I want you to know something. If you want to hear this again, we got it taped, okay? Sermon audio. Uh, it's also, you're taping this too, right, uh, uh, Giovanni? Okay. So we, we, you can hear it, and all my notes you can get from sermon audio. They're there, okay? You just go to there. It won't be there till probably tonight or tomorrow, but it'll be there. So I said a lot, but pretty much everything I said is on paper, okay? Anyway, it's good to be here. It's good to be here in these days. Let me just pray, and then a couple more things I want to say. Father, we thank you so much for this time. We bless you for your great love and kindness to each one of us here. Indeed, you are faithful. We go through the years as, as, as Christians. Many of us here have been for years, and truly veterans gone, gone for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years. 70, I think, one in this room here. Lord, going on for you. Amazing, God. We, we thank you for that. You give us the grace. Indeed, you are the one who keeps us strong to the end, not to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and make you stand in your presence, blameless with, with glory and great joy. We thank you for that. Thank you for each one here. Lord, help us in our lives, wherever we are at, whatever we are doing in our relationships, in our work, Lord, in our service, in our ministry. Lord, help us. We need you. We are indeed in a a world that, Lord, I look at, I, I, I cannot believe what has happened the last two, three, four years in our country, how things are going downhill. But we thank you, God, that we can be alive, because the main thing is not what's going on in the world. The main thing is that we are a light to the world. And so help us to be a light by our words and by our actions, Father. Use us, God, individually. Use us as families. Use us as a church. We ask you for that. Just help everybody, Lord, once who aren't here today, can make it for whatever reason. We pray for them, too, and all who are watching online, listening. God, thank you for them. I just pray for your blessing there too. Thank you again now for all those who pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.